I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So today I am absolutely honored and delighted to have as my guest Bodhi Ara-Jones. They're the founder of KaiFlow, and this is a collective I worked with during, well, earlier this year, during the most intense part of my lockdown, and it was life-changing in many ways. So Bodhi developed KaiFlow and its methodology, which they shaped over the past 15 years through their expertise in neuroscience, sports psychology, martial arts, and lots of other influences. They are fascinating and knowledgeable. And Bodhi understood from an early age that the world of binaries of right and wrong, male and female, et cetera, just didn't work for them. So Bodhi's unique and breathtakingly refreshing lens on the world was shaped through sports, art, and games, and the exploration of what it meant to be outside of normal. Through a lifelong exploration in the field of pure potential, they trained with the Shaolin monks, toured with professional surfers, musicians, and actors. Bodhi's master's research focused on studying personal, social, and global narratives. This further enriched the Kai Flow methodology and contributed to the Kai in Kai Flow, which is focused on personal and social innovation, connection, and collaboration rather than competition, which is quite something for someone who has a background in coaching competitive athletes. So the connection thing is a really important part of what we're going to talk about. So in this episode, we're really talking about the value of, well, being uncomfortable, where that brings you of somebody who's actually created a methodology that is all about having a discomfort practice and getting into flow state and sort of grappling with your own discomfort. But I can't wait to talk about some of the discomfort that you intentionally cause in the world because it has been a beautiful thing to be part of. So we're talking about how being in the unknown is really important to being fully yourself. So this is usually a tough question for people because I'm asking you to, to name just one specific uncomfortable moment that has changed your life and shaped who you are. So over to you, Bodhi. Okay. Thanks, Betsy. And it was a real honor working with you this year and we had a lot of fun, right? <laughs> fun, <laughs> tears, all of the things. <laughs> Roller coaster time. Um, I'm sure it has been for everyone in lockdown. Um, one, I mean, one uncomfortable moment, I'm kind of going, okay. Because there's the uncomfortable moments that I deliberately create for myself to be outside of what we kind of know all the time, you know, our, our routines and our structures and all of that. And I'll deliberately put myself consciously outside of that often to explore the unknown. Mm-hmm. And then there's the uncomfortable moments that I suppose that's a very, very understate, <laughs> the understatement of the century in terms of some of the circumstances that I've been in. Um, and I guess I'm going to just dive straight in, you know, so um, the Kai Flow practice, because there is this sort of uh, 
I guess it's contradiction. When you were introducing me, I, I was sort of listening and thinking, yeah, that actually sounds like a total contradiction that I train professional athletes. And, you know, it's all it sounds like it's all about performance and improvement and gold medals. And then we talk about Kaiflow being not that and about undoing and unlearning and being in the unknown and it not being about winning or competition. It's much more about mm -hmm. collaboration. Mm -hmm. So so I can talk about the moment or, or the year, I guess. It was a moment that turned into a year that, that had me look at our practice in terms of training gold medalists and musicians and performers to be more elite or better performers. And where the whole thing turned around was that a, two very close people to me in my life committed suicide in 2016. Wow, yeah. And both of those people in their own right were super, super um, successful. You know, you'd look at them and think that they had made it, you know, all of those um, standards and ideals that we kind of look at and think that looks like happiness or that looks like success. And so when that happened, um, that just changed everything. It was like, mm. okay, this incredible practice called Kai Flow, but how do we use this to make a bigger difference in the world? How do we democratize the practice to get it to more people? How do we move this practice from elite performers to collaborate, competition to collaboration? And I started to work and spent the last five years taking the practice apart almost and undoing it to, to, to put together the bits that work for everyone. And um, yeah, and to democratize it. And so our practice now is much more focused on undoing, unlearning, coming back to who you truly are. It's not about getting anywhere or performance or external or anything external. So we kind of flipped the whole practice five years mm. ago. And uh, yeah. And just to just help listeners understand what is the Kaiflow practice or what was the Kaiflow practice? Because there are certain essentials fundamental pillars of it because people think what what is that it's it's kind of a martial arts practice for the mind more or less right but what well, is it originally it was more sports psychology and as i said it was about how do you have somebody perform at their optimum during that exploration and working with athletes and musicians i studied flow the science of flow mm -hmm. um, which originated through somebody called mihai chick sent me high I write that down in a very easy way to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> it's Hungarian, right? Yeah. Um, and we drew a lot from the flow science. But but what really attracted me to that practice is um, Mihai, Chip Sent Mihai, would say it's the key to happiness because it's about being so immersed in every single moment that your ego falls away. And that when your brain is in that alpha-theta state and releasing those six brain chemicals, you're in a place of none of your limitations, none of your belief systems, none of the time-space constraints that you're constantly caught up with, that's gone. And your ego, in, it, with your positive beliefs as well as your negative beliefs, has disappeared. So you're immersed in that moment. It was about coming back to if we can be happy in each moment, if we can be so immersed that that's the key. It has to work on a personal, social and global level. I love that because a lot of people will be familiar with flow state and, you know, athletes use it to get into flow and to visualize winning and, and just to plot their course if they're, say, a skier or whatever. 
But what you're saying is you found that it was so freeing to be in flow state that it had potential to truly change the world. Coupled with my master's, um, which was about personal, social and global narratives and how if you want to change one narrative, you have to draw right back into personal because to get a person to care about changing the world, they first got to care and value about themselves. So it made sense to me that if then the flow state is about the ego falling away on a personal level, then community team, particularly team, I've worked with sports teams, it really is about in the flow state, the team's ego has fallen away or the individual ego has fallen away. And so they're connecting in this collective flow state. Change your story to change your world was the narrative. And then if you actually immerse in flow, there's a, yeah, there's some magic that happens there. Hmm. That is an understatement. I remember being in group flow sessions with Kai Flow and magic doesn't even begin to describe it because I was watching people who are secret artists you know, they have their high powered executive job and they're writing a novel or a screenplay or people who are really cutting edge drag artists, for example, just be in their magic and sharing that together created this collective energy. There is a, a big element in there, isn't there, of having to know what your own personal guiding principles are. That's a big part of the Kaifla practice. And also of then doing those clicking off certain parts of your brain to get into a flow state. So there's a, it's a really, it's a really beautiful process. And it's not like it's just something happens. It's the magic happens because you build the framework for it. I know at the beginning of getting into Kai Flow, working with Kai Flow, you challenge people to do unconscious biases tests because of what that turns up. Because you're talking about breaking the binary, stepping out of the ego, stepping out of the broken ways that don't work for anybody, but that we've been programmed consciously or unconsciously. And, and, and that can be racism or sexism or all manner of biases. So it would be interesting to hear about unconscious biases and then how this process helps people to break the binary. We ask people to look at their unconscious bias. And the way we, I suppose the way we work with that is, um, players we call them players not clients because we create games um players come in and um this started because they fill in a personal profile um and as we were looking at the undoing and unlearning process what made sense was to look at unconscious bias so where we have limitations beliefs where systems and institutions are so ingrained inside of us that we become the walking representation of an institutional system and as you say whether that's racism homophobia um, classism, sexism. So you talk about binaries and internalizing biases. So how was that personal for you? What did you stumble upon in this work in yourself? Yeah. About three years ago, and this is shocking to me because in the Kaiflo practice, we undo personal beliefs continually to open up more possibility. About three years ago, I watched Nanette, which is a stand-up comedian Hannah Gadsby and it's a one hour Netflix and I would ask everybody to watch that because I'm sure everybody would get something from it yeah it's amazing but watching that watching the net um first of all it just it just floored me in upset it's brilliant and it and it made me laugh but it also broke my heart I resonated so much with Hannah Gadsby and and everything she was sharing and I realized it just dawned on me how much internalized homophobia I have. 
And you want to know that I've been out and gay and recently identified as queer since I was 19. It's like, for me, it's been like just who I've been all of my life. It's just who I am. Um, And recently identifying as gender fluid this year. But the reason that was so recent is because of my internalised homophobia and internalised gender phobia. And I didn't even know if that's a word, but I think that only when I watched Nanette did I realise how much internalised homophobia I had. And it's subtle. And the thing is, it's not the obvious things. Like, of course, I'm not externally homophobic. It's quite heartbreaking when you're gay and the institution and the conditioning has, has brainwashed you so much that inside of you, you do stuff like I used to hold the tension for people. Like there'd be a joke about a lesbian or a gay person, I'm in the room, and I would hold that tension and then I would make that joke. And that's the subtle stuff that you're so conditioned to do, at least in the 80s when I was growing up as gay in the 90s. And it was, Mm. you'd be the funny one or you'd be the cool one. And that would be the way that I would pass within heteronormative circles. But you don't know you're doing that. You don't know that that's become part of your ego and part of your personality. And then when I watched Hannah Gadsby and she threw the tension back at the audience and you do have to watch it to get this. Oh, yeah. Um, it's really powerful. And that's all I started doing was not holding the tension in rooms and where I saw stuff crumbling and, and people would react in different ways or people would get angry because I wasn't holding the tension. For my queerness in a room full of straight people, it was the strangest experience. And I realised I've been doing that all of my life. That's pretty exhausting and upsetting, and uh, but very freeing when I watched that. So I really acknowledged her for making that piece. It's a piece of art. If you haven't watched it, it is so worth watching repeatedly. I've watched it more than once. So I guess another way to put that would be that you, you quit holding the discomfort for other people. Yeah. You let people feel the discomfort that they probably should feel. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to deliberately make people uncomfortable. It's not about that. But what shows up is unconscious homophobia that shows up where it should show, where it is, rather than me holding the tension and laughing something off. And and yeah, Mm. you get it if you watch that program. That's just a really brilliant call to let people feel the discomfort that they're supposed to feel. That's pretty much everybody in the society. We've been trained to either give discomfort to other people or hold discomfort for people in the name of niceness. Yeah. And this is a really interesting point that nobody yet has brought up. So thanks, Bodhi, about yeah. let the discomfort hang there and let the yeah. people who need to deal with it, deal with it. Don't yeah. absorb it. So what is the process of coming out as genderqueer and of being misgendered? What does that feel like? First of all, I did want something was coming up when you were talking before, and I wanted to talk to that because part of that not holding attention for people was I think that I'd been conditioned all the way through my life that I was kind of lucky to be accepted by a heteronormative society. So whenever I was in heteronormative circles and people were great with me, I was grateful. So just having friendliness, there wasn't it. Oh, I'm grateful to be accepted. I didn't ever choose to be gay or queer as I identify now to be accepted that was liberation for me from a conditioning that I didn't want it was liberation not acceptance so that's really important for me that's a beautiful distinction liberation not acceptance yeah acceptance is 
kind of groveling. Liberation is fierce. Away from tolerance, right? And we've had mm-hmm. tolerance as a word, which is just, oh, okay, I'm now grateful that you tolerate me. I mean, wow. Wow. But, yeah. <laughs> tolerance to acceptance to mofo yeah. liberation. I'm trying really yeah. hard to swear. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I love the word liberation. That's, yeah. yeah, it's a fierce word. It's a great word. Okay. Yeah. So liberation being misgendered where do you want to pick this up then i want to pick it up with i don't identify as gnc gender non-conforming okay Um, and i I can explain why i don't i know no it sounds like i'm being really anal no i'm sorry but and i'm sorry that you have to teach me because i should but i'm gonna get it wrong but now i'm gonna get it right (laughs) so the only reason i don't identify as gender non-conforming and and this is not to make wrong anybody that does because everyone we all have our own experiences i have my own experience it's not like anyone else and i really want to reiterate that because a lot of the time we're getting lumped into these categories which is more of the same. So somebody else who identifies as gender non-conforming, that's their experience and that's really their experience. The reason I personally don't is because for me to say gender non-conforming, I'm already having to justify that I don't conform to a normal. Um, So for me, it's gender fluidity and that it means that I can transcend gender. Um, Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'll feel like, Bodhi you know one version and then you know the next day I could feel completely different but I'm still not defining myself that's why I don't identify as non-binary it's gender fluid for me so it's not I'm not being binary no I'm gender fluid for me it's about transcending gender and in my buddhist practice you know we talk about 3,000 realms in every single moment and that's for me really aligned with being gender fluid because it means I just get to recreate myself every day. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. But also it brings up the point that language is super important. Language can make people uncomfortable and feel liberated and feel excluded, but it's important yeah. to ask and honor what that is for people. And yeah. that is a beautiful place to be. I think in human evolution right now, people have the opportunity to truly view they are in a way that they weren't allowed to be maybe in the past century. I get the confusion and I also get the frustration, Um, but that frustration is the privilege of somebody that's never had to identify because the default is probably where that person sits um, and lives their life from. You know, friends of mine will say, have said in the past, well, why don't we have a straight pride? And it's like, because it's straight pride every day. You know? <laughs> straight pride every single day. So but the pronouns are only there because if they're not, we're invisible. And so when you say, what's it like to be misgendered? It's like being invisible. It's like you don't exist. Um, you know, And that's everything from filling in forms. And you have to put miss, 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 missus, whatever. And if you don't, like I couldn't open a bank account one day because I refused to identify in the way they wanted me to identify. So you become invisible. Um, there's lots of examples of that, but the, you know it's pretty erasing of your experience and as you as a human being. So yeah, and it's exhausting because you have to interrupt that all the time to say, actually, no, I don't identify like that. And you know, so I've taken to, to wearing t-shirts and to having pronouns on my t-shirt and on my wallet and you know, like that, because it's just, Okay, this is easier. 
It's almost like having to, it's like people dress their babies so that they don't get misgendered because they get really offended when their little boy gets mistaken for a little girl or it's, it's interesting that that's your lived experience right now that you're having to introduce a concept to society and kind of take the hit for the fact that it's still very new to a lot of people. I know that a lot of what you do in breaking the binary, you talk about coming up with a new language building on what we're saying about language being important. What is the language of the binary? What is the language that breaks the binary? Because I mean, honestly, a lot of people haven't really thought about the binary world in which we live. And I think this is a really good way to illustrate that, mm. the language. Lots of people are talking about that at the moment. Um, in that, in certain languages, in certain countries, nationalities, you literally don't exist. I still think with English, there's that we need to invent new languages. We talk about new languages, new worlds. And, you know, we've for a long time talked about change your story, change your world. And it's back to that look at your narrative and to create a new, even an experience of reality, experience of your world, you first change your language. The binaries are polar opposites. You know, a lot of the time we'll be talking with players and they'll talk about Typical example is being good or being bad. I think lots of us live in con binary constructs like that, and it is ingrained and it's ingrained from school. And you know, you're being graded pretty much as soon as you get out of kindergarten or play school, and you're on the machine, and it's an improvement machine, and it's you know, gold star or 10 out of 10, and that's pretty restrictive. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that whole system is in there's the institution ingrained inside of us, and that's just one example. And I think breaking that is where the real creativity is and where the whole new world exists is when you start to let go of that and then explore, okay, if you weren't having to be better and you weren't having to be good and you weren't avoiding being bad, explore there. Like if you let that go, what, what's possible? Yeah. What have you seen be possible? Because you've worked with leaders and athletes and creatives and what are some of the, the beautiful moments that you've gotten to witness as people have broken the binary, as they have challenged the biases and the fact that we are in the machine and we internalize these binaries and they're not us. They're just our programming. So yeah. what have you seen happen as people break the programming? I was working with a player who was a lawyer. She had two kids. She came to Kaiflo to break her binary thinking and to uncondition because she could she could just feel that through working as a lawyer, she she actually said, I know I'm projecting this onto my kids and that her kids, one of her kids was um, already kind of in that sort of perfectionist, getting everything right, very sort of restrained. And um, and I think that through her Kaiflo experience, she undid so much that her kids started to change. And she wasn't directly, obviously, sitting them down and having a conversation about binaries, but her kids started to get more freedom and play and there was more magic. And she'd come every week and say, such and such has just been playing like this. Or, you know, this sort of thing is really moving for me. Hearing stories like that where, you know, a child of under 10 and under 5, their experience of the world is different because their parent has undone and unlearned some of their binary perfectionism was pretty moving yeah I want to hear about rebel majesty because it was something that was really just getting off the ground when I was working with yeah. Kai Flo and 
I know it's come a long way since. The Rebel Majesties, the community um, who do practice Kai Flow, um, but also come together to rebel, reconnect and reshape the world. It's pretty exciting. We see raging creativity. Uh, we run creative studios. So it's a community where people can connect. We've talked about it's a place where outsiders become insiders. So if you don't feel like you fit in another community, you probably fit in Rebel Majesty. Um, <laughs> We talk about rebelling. The, the point of Rebel Majesty, it's rebelling against um, external standards and ideals and all of the stuff that we've been talking about to come back to yourself and each other. Um, and yeah, just create, just really, you know, go back to absolute eyes closed, full expression, creativity. And we do that through creative studios, through um, game immersions. We create everything as a game. And whether that's game, your game is your creative project. It could be... Uh, traveling around the world it could be you just create anything as a game but it's all about yeah rebelling undoing unlearning and uh yeah just I suppose trusting yourself like having a deep trust in yourself that's part of the practice um coming back to your intuition and your instinct and then fully expressing yourself we talk about going slow in -hmm. fact um Kirsty who you interviewed a few weeks ago said to me um she quit, she she talked about going sorry slow is smooth and smooth is fast and I thought that was a beautiful way yeah. of describing how by slowing down letting go coming back to yourself actually will speed you up more than anything and that's mm-hmm. that's at the heart of our practice gotta love it when your podcast guests quote each other slow is smooth and smooth is fast <laughs> I guess we have creatives we have rebels we're queers mavericks outlaws and every single session or creative studio session or zoom call there's always a really interesting combination of people and Mm. i think that's what makes rebel majesty yeah well and there's a certain type of person who will be drawn to something called rebel majesty it talks about breaking binaries and raging creativity because something that i saw when i was talking to other people about kai flow is that a lot of people say I'm not a creative or I'm not creative. And I actually had somebody say to me, I'm very, I'm very practical. I'm not a creative. And I thought, well, that is the perfect illustration of what binary is. You're one or the other. Or people who just think they're not creative, but actually my belief now, my understanding now, and I learned this from Kai Flo and you is that everyone is creative. Everyone has creativity that they're either aware of or can unlock. And Mm -hmm. And I guess the real the point of all of this is that when we are locked in the binary and can't access our creativity, of course we can't access solutions to things like climate change or racial injustice or raging homophobia. It's it's we're still locked into these binaries. And as soon as we start to liberate ourselves and others, that's when we get to some of the major solutions that help free us of our collective shadow side and free us from the hurt and the wounds that we inflict on each other because of our programming. And I think that's the big point that I want people to know about Kai Flow, about the work that you do. It's, you say, change your story, change your world. And it's absolutely true. And it's absolutely critical, especially now. So what is a global pandemic and how people have reacted to it change something in your view? George Floyd being murdered changed everything for me. Um, We were already working on undoing bias and undoing internalized racism of ourselves, our organization, um, 
of every single player we worked with. But when that happened, what I noticed was the, the white people that had had such a resistance to our work prior to that were suddenly calling and suddenly, oh, okay, now, now I understand. But I'm seeing for the first time there is some change happening in, in institutions, apologising, um, you know, undoing, educating. It's the first time I've ever really seen a shift in that area mm. um, to the extent that it's shifting and there's still so much work we have to do in our own undoing and our own unlearning. Um, I think that that was massive. We were running a programme when that happened and um, there was a huge impact and upset and shock, obviously, in our community, combined then with um, being in lockdown. I think people are open to looking now and undoing and unlearning. I think we were so busy before and everybody was on such a schedule and there was it was always so much more important. You know, your work was more important. It was always something more important than really having a look. Mm. And I think this year has given us a space to really have a look and to what we call reject, which is to really go and have a look underneath something. So instead of just ticking boxes and organisations doing unconscious bias stuff and nobody's really interested, suddenly everyone was, was woken up. And, and and actually, that's a sweeping statement, not everyone. Because <laughs> all I wish. People that aren't, exactly. But there was just more of a, I guess, more listening and, and openness. This time of deep global discomfort has created time for, well, non-optional pausing. It's interesting to hear that you have had people getting involved who previously were like, hmm, yeah. is it really that much of a problem? I think even if it's only, a, you know, just a slightly the higher percentage of people woke up and were so okay, yeah, I get it, and they had to come out of denial, I see, you know, I speak to a lot of people who um, who have slowed down and, and there's more space to, yeah, to really look at the stuff that they wouldn't normally look at. Yeah, there's been a lot of collective heartbreak this year. And <clears throat> it's not necessarily a bad thing. Do you think that the things like the George Floyd murder this year, things like COVID, the deep discomfort we've all been going through, do you think that's shaken enough people up that they recognize that the world doesn't work for them either? And that they've just been living in the machine and thinking that it's it's fine, it works for me, but it really doesn't. So they're ready to do something about it. I don't know. I don't know if it's shaking enough people up. Um, I think there are people that see it and still it doesn't suit them to see it. I've seen that as well. We all live in our own echo chambers and I live in an echo chamber. So for me, it always looks like the people in my world are all working for change. And I live in an echo chamber. I know that. Um I knew that when Trump got in, mm. that I lived in an echo chamber because that was an impossibility. Yeah. Well, it was Brexit shocked and shook me to the core. And so mm -hmm. I thought Trump could actually happen because I don't know what's actually going on. What do you wish more people would get uncomfortable about? Right now, I think I wish um, people in tech programmers would get really uncomfortable about putting unconscious bias into the tech. That, that face recognition, for instance, doesn't recognize certain cultures um, as women. The institution and the systems that are invisible and inside of us, they're inside the programmers. They're inside people that are building um, apps and you know, search engines and, 
And I did walk into a tech event and talked about that. And one of the programs said, well, we've all got bias. It was just like, well, of course we've got bias. So of course it's going to go into the tech. Yeah. I don't know if most people are aware of it, but if you think about most of the people who are building the programs and the platforms that we use, there's a pretty narrow, narrow demographic. It's probably going to be mostly male, probably very Western, probably very white, probably very straight. And those are the people who are curating our filters. And that is going to have an impact. And that causes separation as well as potential oppression by leaving people unchallenged or just not interacting with people who aren't like them. Are there any areas in which I've shown unconscious bias and unawareness of how I'm tied to the binary that have you see very clearly that I'm not aware of when I ask questions or when I talk to you? Um, I think... As white people, and I'll be included in this, probably in this interview, the way I talk, um, and probably both of us, is so privileged. We so don't know the privilege that we've got. We swim around in it, we talk from it, and we're not even aware. And there'll be people watching us going, what the F? You don't, you know, how are you even having this conversation? Because you have no idea about my experience. I think that, and I feel that all the time, how unconscious am I that the conversation I'm having right now is just to somebody else, it's like they're watching us go in, you're in such a privileged echo chamber mm. that we're even having the conversation. Like even if we think about, we're having a conversation about a discomfort practice, there's a lot of privilege because there are so many people that don't have to practice discomfort it's just their world. But absolutely, even the title of this this podcast, The Discomfort Practice, is yeah. the luxury of getting to practice it rather yeah. than just having to live it every day because yeah. of what you look like or where you were born or who you are. Yeah. So it's a luxury and a privilege to be able to choose to step outside of my comfort zone to practice something like that. Yeah, I guess that's yeah. true. It's not much of a first step, but it is a first step to be able to say, my, my comfort zone is huge compared to most people's. My comfort zone crashes over most people. It takes consciousness and hopefully humility and a commitment to collective liberation to give that up because it's just so easy to live in it. It's so easy to live in it. Oh. I don't even know how to end this because we could go on and on. I know you've got good stories. We're just going to have to have you back when Rebel Majesty is a few more months along. Yeah. Maybe maybe sure. bring along somebody to talk about their experience of going through it. Yeah. That would be wonderful. If people want to find us, just go to kaiflow.com and that's a way that they can just register for more information. And uh, yeah, there's a bit about us there. Bodier Jones, you are a legend and I love you. And love knowing it. you has truly changed my life. And I am grateful to have randomly met you a few years ago now. Take care. Thank you so yeah. much for your time. Thanks, Betsy. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts and head over to the Discomfort Practice Patreon page. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can become a contributor and help us to produce this podcast and reach new people with the idea that discomfort is just the edge of change, the edge of our superpowers. 
and the edge of changing the world for the better. Thanks to my wonderful team who helped me produce this podcast, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, Katrina Affleck for the original artwork, and to my co-producer Spencer Rausch. Let's all stay uncomfortable.